You are going to want a Bible this morning as we continue our journey through the Gospel of Mark. So if you have a Bible, go on and open up to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. If you need a Bible, we have some great, speaking of volunteers, that we are celebrating next Sunday. Uh, some great uh, people that are going to come around. Just slip up a hand and we will put a Bible in your hand so you can follow along with us. So last week, uh, I know many of you joined us for our Easter celebration uh, just uh, an amazing morning, but not just uh, the Easter celebration itself. The Sunday was, uh, was a lot of fun and celebrating our risen King and Savior Jesus, but also uh, the Holy Week uh, leading up to that. I've loved hearing the stories uh, from your different uh, grace groups and family experiences. Thursday night doing the Seder dinners in homes, celebrating Passover or Maundy Thursday, that final Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples, and then Friday, Good Friday, our first ever Good Friday service up here as we uh, remembered the, the seven final statements that Jesus declared from the cross, all culminating, obviously, with this past Sunday morning of declaring a risen Savior and King, that Jesus Christ is alive. And Jesus Christ being Lord and being alive changes everything. And so that leads into where we've been, going through the Gospel of Mark, this account of Jesus' life and ministry. And we see how Jesus has been, showed up on the scene announcing and displaying the kingdom of God. This is what it looks like when God shows up. That if we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. If we want to know how God treats people, we look at how Jesus treated people. If we want to know how God talks to people or responds to people, we look at how Jesus talks and responds. And a couple of weeks ago, we recognized that in Mark, we reached a point where it makes a dramatic turn. That up to this point, Jesus has been announcing, displaying, embodying the kingdom of God. The presence and availability, the power of God with us. But then he makes this turn. And he goes from announcing and displaying the kingdom through his miracles and through his life and through his teaching to now pointing to the cross. What it would take, what it would require to bring God's people back into relationship with himself. And so that's what we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 8. We'll be starting in verse 22. But before we go there, I'm going to ask you a question. If you're going to ask your family or your friends, the people that knew you best, who do people say that I am? How would they answer? Let's think about it for a second. If you were to ask the people that knew you best, who do people say that I am? What would they say? A business leader, a shop owner, a teacher? A nice guy, a kind woman, compassionate, a jerk face. Man, that's always an option, right? Now, who do people say that I am? And then obviously if you were to turn to them, this person that knows you best, a child that's grown up with you, a spouse, a best friend. Yeah, yeah, but who do you say that I am? Not just like what the world sees, but, but you know me. Who do you say that I am? And we live in a world that identity is a driving force. Discovering who we are is, is a driving force in our culture. And the reason is, is because it's a driving force in the human heart. 
that every human on this planet is asking that question. Who am I? Where do I belong? Where do I fit in? What defines me? What is the purpose to this life that I've been given? Is there any purpose? Now, the crazy thing is that over the last generation, we've watched where identity isn't something to be discovered. Identity is now something to be curated or created. It's now the pressure on you is to figure out for yourself and then to display to the best of your ability who you are, your identity. And in fact, the identity that you display doesn't actually have to line up at all with what's really going on on the inside, does it? There's enough filters and photoshops and distance that you can put between what you display and what's actually what makes up who you really are. But what if identity wasn't something that the pressure is on you to create and to curate, to keep this image up? But what if identity is actually this gift that has been given that isn't found in discovering yourself, but is actually discovered in finding God? What if identity, this thing that we are longing for, confused about, feeling the weight and the pressure of to create, to curate? What if identity isn't something that is up to you to discover? But what if it's discovered in finding God? Jesus lays down a different path to true identity. Not something that we strive for, but something that is bestowed and is actually discovered when we're willing to die to ourselves, to find who we are, our life wrapped up in his. So I'm going to begin here in 8.22. Remember, they've been at this point up in the region of the Gentiles and the Decapolis, the ten cities. Those people that would be defined as the outsiders, apart from God. But they make their way back down to the Sea of Galilee, to a place called Bethsaida. And it says that some people brought to Jesus a blind man and begged him to touch him. They remember, they've heard the miracles, they've seen the things that he's done. And Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. He took him away from the watching crowds. And when he had spit on his eyes, which is just a peculiar way about going, going about healing somebody, in my personal opinion, and laid his hands on him. I think, Jesus, could you have just done that part and left the spit out of it? But for whatever reason, he asked him, do you see anything? And the man looked up and said, well, I, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Remember, this is somebody who hasn't seen anything. He's felt the world with his hands, heard the world. I mean, and so he has an impression of what things look like, but he's not actually seen. So he's doing his best to explain what he's seeing, but he's not yet seeing clearly. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent the man to his home, saying, Don't even enter the village In other words, don't make a spectacle of what I have just done. So what is this about, and why does Mark include this story here? Because where we are headed next is all about seeing clearly. 
And it's interesting that this miracle, which, by the way, just as a side note, as you read uh, the Gospels, what you'll discover is that there is no miracle that Jesus does that he ever repeats. Not even when he's dealing with the same issue. He doesn't heal the, the different groups of blind men that he encounters in the same way. The deaf or the lame or the lepers. He doesn't repeat a miracle. It's almost like Jesus is like saying, hey, there's not a formula to follow. Follow me. There's not this plan, you know, step A, B, and C and ten, ten steps to a glorious life. No, keep coming to me and I will lead you in the right process towards healing and, and wholeness and freedom. But Jesus, uh, this unique miracle for this man, but Mark recounting this miracle is a way of him saying, listen, there is a process in which we begin to see, but we don't yet quite see. It looks like trees walking. But stick with this Jesus. And he can restore so that we can see all things clearly. And that's our mission statement as a church, isn't it? Pursuing God's heart for the restoration of all things. And what if at the heart of restoration is the ability to see things as they actually are? And what is that first thing that they must learn to see clearly? That they don't quite get yet, like trees walking Verse 27, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? That familiar question right at the heart of Mark's gospel. Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and, and, and others, they even say, you're one of the prophets. And Jesus, and I'm adding this phrase, it's almost, you can imagine, almost leaning in. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? I have that circled in my Bible as the center of Mark's gospel. Actually, I would say it is the central question of all of life. The question that every human at some point is going to have to answer for themselves. Who do you say this Jesus is? And Peter answers him. He, Peter steps up, you know, in boldness. That's who Peter is, right? He, he's living into his identity even here. You are the Christ. In Hebrew, that word Christ is actually the word Meshua, or, uh, we say Messiah. And what it means is anointed. We've taken it to mean anointed king, but really it just means literally the anointed one. And, and it shows up all throughout the Old Testament, and primarily when it's used, this, the anointed of God, the one that is set apart, the one that is set aside for God's purposes, the one that is intended to display or embody the, the, uh, the character and the heart of who God is. There's three groups of people that we see uh, throughout the Old Testament that are attached, that this anointed one title gets attached to their, uh, to their job description. And that is prophets, priests, and kings. That prophets, those who uh, declare the word of God to the people, reveal the heart of God, or call the people back to God, can be anointed, set apart by God, priests the ones that are to minister to God and to minister to people, the representatives are representing God to the masses and representing mankind to God, interceding on behalf 
of humanity and standing as a representative of God to man are anointed, set apart by God into their identity, their calling, but then also kings, those designed to rule, to lead the people in the ways of God. And as time passed and the prophets disappeared off of the scene and and questions started to emerge about, God, have you forgotten us? And and where are you? And how are you going to fulfill your promises to bless all people? And how are you going to fulfill this call to redeem and restore us back into relationship? How are you going to fix this broken world, God? This idea of the anointed one, prophet, priest, and king, kind of congealed around the hope for a promised one who would come from God to set all things right. Not just an anointed one, but the anointed one. The one that displayed and declared, embodied the heart of God. The one that was going to lead his people into God's reign and rule. The one that would intercede on behalf of God for mankind and represent mankind back. To God, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. Now it's interesting because up to this point, Jesus has never made that claim about himself. All he has done is just displayed the kingdom, taught with authority. But there was something in the way that he taught, something in the way that he lived, something in the way that he treated people, something about the way that, that he interacted with this world that shocked the religious, that appalled the powerful but absolutely attracted the broken and the desperate. Something about that one, Peter said, oh, I know. I know exactly who you are. You're the Christ, the anointed king of God. Now, it's interesting, Jesus, similar to what he just said to the blind man, don't go back into the village, don't make a spectacle of this thing that I've done, Jesus turns to Peter and says, and he strictly charges all of them not to tell anyone about who he is. Why? Because at this point, it's like trees walking. They don't yet get what kind of king this is. They don't yet get what kind of kingdom this is. In their minds, the Christ is this powerful figure that's going to come in on a white stallion and set things right, overthrow the Roman occupation, and bring the people back into the land where Israel as a nation state could rule over the other nations of the world. But what God was saying is that's not the kind of kingdom. That is not the kind of king. This king, this king has a different plan. Not to rule or oppress from without, but to transform from within. The only kind of change that will really change the world. In a little bit of context, uh, in in a few months, some of you will be coming with me to Israel uh, and Palestine to the Holy Land on Epic. And we'll take you to Caesarea Philippi. And we will uh, walk up to that ancient ruin And it's an interesting place. Caesarea Philippi was a city that was built in honor of Caesar, named, uh, it was given um, Philip, who is the brother of Herod, who we've read about earlier, uh, has built this city as a a sort of, as an offering to Rome, and it named it after two people, himself and Caesar. 
And it was nice of him to put Caesar first. I think he realized his head was on the line for who gets the most glory. But Caesarea Philippi, this, this, uh, this city built to honor an emperor, an empire. But there was an interesting thing, that a place right in, the, in the, the middle of Caesarea Philippi. And it was a giant temple that uh, was built to Zeus and to the gods. But it was also, it became a temple that was known to worship Pan, the god of fertility. And this, uh, this massive temple that was built there in this cliffside, and still, it's an impressive place to go, even though the majority of the temple is long gone and destroyed. But this imposing cliff that reigns over this beautiful, fertile, lush land. And in this giant cliff with this temple built to worship the gods, there's a cave. And in that cave is a stream. And they say that stream is one of the headwaters of the Jordan River. But a practice emerged there as they would worship Pan, and they would offer sacrifices there in that temple to their gods. At a minimum, we know that they would offer sacrifices of goats, but it was also understood that they offered sacrifices of children. And the way that it would work is they would bring their offering to the gods, and they would throw that, that child or that animal into the waters of that cave, and they would watch. And if that sacrifice disappeared into the water and not seen anymore. It was assumed that it had been accepted by the gods and that goodwill and favor was going to be upon the people. But if that, that body floated back up to the surface or blood was seen downstream, then it was assumed that the gods had rejected that sacrifice. And so it's interesting that Jesus leads his disciples about 25 miles north there of Bethsaida on the Sea of Galilee, this comfortable place surrounded by little Jewish fishing villages, right to the heart of the Roman Empire, right at the foot of pagan temple sacrifice and worship. And in that place, he asks a question. Who do you say that I am? I mean, there would have been no other perfect place for Jesus to set himself against the empires of the world than if he had been able to go to Rome itself and stand at the foot of the temple of Zeus and turn to his disciples and say, in light of the power of Rome, in light of the worship of the gods, in light of the attraction of the culture, who am I? Who do you say that I am? Who are you going to follow? Who are you going to worship? Who is going to be your Lord? And Peter steps forward. You are the Christ, the anointed king. But then Jesus makes a turn. And in that place, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, in other words, all of the authorities, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. 
Now, this is interesting because up to this point, Jesus has been talking in parables. He's been using metaphors and, and imagery that is quite confusing to those who are listening. And even his disciples don't get when he uses these uh, mixed images trying to describe what the kingdom of God is like. But here, when it comes to what he must face and what he must go through, he doesn't hide it with parables. He speaks clearly. Here's what's going to happen. The Son of Man is going to suffer. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be killed, but then he's going to rise again. Now, Peter, who has just made this amazing confession, right? Out of all the disciples, recognizing Jesus for who he is, the anointed king that they've been waiting for, the Lord of lords, who's going to set all things right. At this point, lets Jesus know that Jesus doesn't quite get what he's saying. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, which is always an interesting thing to do with God. But turning and seeing his disciples, he, Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In other words, Peter, you started to see, but you still don't get it. You know that I'm the king, but you don't know what kind of king I am. There is no crown without a cross. This is a kingdom of sacrifice. And then calling the crowd to him along with the disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever would save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a person give in return for their soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's a hard word. I was actually thinking about the timing of this, uh, this passage and that we are coming out of Easter Sunday and the celebration of the resurrected Jesus. And even as a church, you know, from a pastor's perspective, I mean, it was an amazing day. This place was packed wall to wall in and, and both services. And it'd be easy to say, yes, this, this is what it's about. Let's fill this place with the masses. Let's, let's ra rally around the good. Let's make a name for ourselves. Grace really could be something. And yet Jesus has this remarkable way of in those moments that seem like uh, the opportunity to, to grab the masses or to claim the kingdom, of throwing a, a wrench in the engine, so to speak. When, at, when the crowds are surrounding the villages looking for miracles, Jesus says, we've got to get away from this place and go somewhere else. 
In John 6, we're told that Jesus, after feeding the 5,000, begins to give them this hard teaching that, that to come after them, they must eat his flesh and drink his blood, and that no one can be a part of what he's doing unless they do that. And it says that everyone is confused, and in fact, many of the disciples left at that point until he's standing there alone with his 12, and he goes, are you also going to leave? And they turn, where are we going to go? You're the one with the words of life. And here, Jesus, also in the aftermath of the feeding of the masses and this declaration that you're the king we've been waiting for, gives this teaching that his is a kind of kingdom that requires a death. That empires are built on success. But the kingdom is built on sacrifice. Let me say that again. Empires are built on success. But the kingdom is built on sacrifice. And Jesus extends this invitation or this challenge that to follow after him requires a cross. It's not a teaching that I really want to hear or to dive into, if I'm really honest. I I like the Jesus that forgives sins. I I like the Jesus that gives miracles and and gives sight to the blind and touches the leper. I like the Jesus that shows up for me when I need him. I like the Jesus that makes my life work. I like the Jesus that gives me peace in my anxiety, that calms my storms. The Jesus that requires me to die. Not so sure (laughs) I like that. The Jesus that tells me I must give up myself. That my identity isn't about building my brand or my empire, clinging to my rights, but that my identity is found when actually I give up everything of me to him. What the gospel makes really clear is that there's this road and it looks like life. It looks like it's going to give us everything that we want, but actually the end of it leads to death. But then there's this other road and it looks like death and the place, the way that no one would actually want to go, but somehow it's actually the road that looks like life. And that there's something about this giving away of ourselves, of this taking up the cross of Jesus, that we actually find the very thing that we're looking for. But this is not the world that we live in. This is not even the, the American Christianity, that we, the water that we swim in. We're, we're told that, that the, the highest point of your life is to, is to accumulate, to, to receive, to make your life happy and comfortable. Is that not it, right? That the highest goal of your existence, of my existence, is to live a comfortable, good life. And Jesus says, take up your cross. Luke, when he's recounting this same interaction with Jesus, adds another word in there that Mark leaves out. Mark just implying it, Luke actually saying it. Take up your cross 
daily and follow me. Now, and I was looking into the Greek to figure out, you know, sort of is there like a symbolic element in which, you know, I have this encounter with God where I give him my life and, and then, you know, kind of go off on my own. But the Greek is pretty explicit. You know, daily just literally means every day. That's the Greek there. Every day, take up your cross and follow me. Every morning when we wake up, Jesus, how do I give up my life, my desires, my, my prominence, my position, my rights, my privileges? How do I give up all of the things that everything in me wants to hold on to as tight as I can for your sake? And Jesus makes it clear that giving, our th- giving everything up for his sake is also to give everything up for the sake of those around us. Am I willing to live that kind of sacrificial life? Man, I feel like as a pastor, like I, I like church where I can stand up on Sundays and we can build a crowd and, and, and the, the adulation. And I appreciate the encouragement after a moving sermon and, and then building back up towards Sunday and we can fill the seats. But that's not the point of any of this, is it? I mean, Sunday is a beautiful time to remember who we are and what we're about, but what we're remembering is that we're a people that have declared Jesus Christ as king, and if he's king, I'm not. And that the path forward to life is actually dying to myself to follow him, not in a weekly religious experience, but in a daily sacrificial walk of learning to follow. It's not building our brand. It's not claiming our rights. It's not being right. Over someone else. I just wonder, what is Jesus inviting us, asking us to die to this morning? Now, I think about it in my marriage, that... We know that feeling when to love somebody well, to honor or to set them up or, or to meet their needs, even at a cost to mine. We know that feeling of dying, right? And I hate it. No one likes it. Death is not pleasant. There's no way to sugarcoat this and be like, hey, but you'll feel good afterwards. No, it sucks. That's why we don't do it. And it's not even that we just choose like the, the, to be the doormat. And like whatever we do, we just become sort of the, yeah, whatever you want out there in the world. No, the dying to self isn't dying to the world. It is dying to Jesus. Like we look to Jesus. What do you want me to do? What are you calling me to give? Where are you asking me to go? How do I keep following you? Not looking for the formulas, but following the voice. Daily. And if at the end of this journey, that 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 years from now, there's just a handful of us that have devoted our lives to learning what it means to die to ourselves, to live to Him, is that worth it? And Jesus asks this painful but powerful question. What good is it for a person to gain the whole world but lose their soul? How 
how much of our lives have been about gaining the world? What keeps you up at night? What's the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning? What makes you anxious or worried or depressed? Where's your peace, your security? What's your hope for the future? Are you trying to gain the world? This isn't meant, I think, from Jesus, because it's just not the way that he talks, to be a message of guilt and condemnation. Beat yourself up and make yourself feel bad. I think it's a call to come home. To come back to the Jesus, the one that actually said this crazy thing, that I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. But there's something in the dying that actually ends up be truly living. And don't we know that if we just zoom back a little bit? The people that, that have built their empires and have gained the world and that are actually dying and empty and broken on the inside? And then we've also encountered those people that seem to have nothing that counts in the world's eyes and yet somehow have something that we all wish we had some substance to their soul, a life that we'd say was well-lived. What is Jesus inviting us to die to today? Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, as brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So don't be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Colossians 2. I want to end with this. I think Paul says it better than I ever could. And again, I mean, I, I encourage you every week, way more important than anything that I could say from up here is what God is wanting to say to you through his word. I encourage you, if you're not already, to just wake up a few minutes early and just dive in. Dive into Mark. Dive into the Gospels. Jesus, what do you want me to know? What are you saying? Because what we find over and over again is that this is a message of a kingdom built on, on sacrifice, on losing ourselves, and yet by losing we somehow gain everything. And I would say, I, I would encourage as many of you as are willing to do this. We're about to read in Colossians 3. If you just spent time this week memorizing that verse, I think it would be a good thing to saturate our soul in. But I'm actually going to begin here in Colossians 2.13. I'm going to invite our, our worship team to come on up as we continue in worship this morning. Colossians 2.13, and then I'm going to skip ahead to 3.1. And you who were dead in your trespasses and your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt 
that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus made it clear that he had to die. But in verse, in chapter 3, verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So therefore, put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And in these things, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger and wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to each other, seeing that you've put off the old self with his practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all. And in all, he becomes our identity. So put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has already forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to, indeed which, to which you indeed were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So, Lord Jesus, as we gather this morning to open your word and to worship you, Lord, we come back to that central point that you died for us. And in doing so, you call us to die to you. That the old self would be crucified on the cross. That we could emerge new and victorious in the resurrection. And in daily learning to take up our cross to follow you. Willing to give up ourselves. To let go of the things that we cling to. To the empires that we build. To follow your voice. To seek first your kingdom. So Lord, if there are ways that we are coming to you with our demands, making ourselves king and you our servant, Lord, we repent. Lord, if there's ways that we're showing up as consumers or spectators, hoping to receive, but without willing to give you everything, may we repent. Lord, if there's ways that we are inviting you into our lives to make our lives better, 
instead of giving you our lives. Lord, may we repent. So Lord, search our hearts. What do we need to die to this morning? That your life could be resurrected in us. So as we worship, we invite you to come and take communion. This reminder of the body of Christ given for you, that the God of this universe sacrificed everything on your behalf, that you could be reunited with him. And we take that cup that Jesus said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take, drink, and do this in remembrance of me, the blood of a new covenant. So even as you search your heart, that we could come to the table honest and clean, forgiven before God to receive who he is and what he's done for us. May our identity be wrapped up in him. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.